Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson. Tonight's Ask the Horse Live is about EPM and brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products, makers of Elevate WS. EPM is a notoriously difficult disease for veterinarians to diagnose, and it's equally tricky to treat. But there's hope as researchers continue to investigate this neurologic disease. To answer your questions about EPM, we're joined tonight by our expert panelists, Dr. Sarah Colmer of the University of Pennsylvania's New Bolton Center. Welcome, Dr. Colmer. Thank you so much, Michelle, for having me, and thank you to anyone who's listening for your valuable time to learn more about equine neurologic disease. Dr. Colmer, you're a third-year resident at New Bolton, and you're about to start a fellowship in large animal neurology, which is a very specific specialty. Can you tell us a little bit how you got interested in that field? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. Actually, I'm really excited about my next step, specifically in neurology. But as far as how I kind of stumbled into that field, um, no pun intended, I guess, as part of my residency in internal medicine, which I'm completing in about a month, I do have exposure to all sorts of areas. Like we, you know, investigate things involving cardiology or respiratory disease or gastrointestinal disease. But the field that I kept finding myself drawn to and coming back to with the most fascination by far was neurology. And we're really fortunate at New Bolton Center where I work to have a really wide variety of patients and a pretty large number of patients with neurologic disease. And I think part of that is because we are very lucky to have a boarded neurologist on staff who is Dr. Amy Johnson. And working with her and with our, our patients and their owners have convinced me that neurology is a field that I really want to learn more about. Um, and I guess the last kind of point of interest there is that there's so much that we don't know about neurologic disease still, and I'm really excited to be a part of the research and investigation to contribute to that kind of body of knowledge. Yeah. And when we reached out to Dr. Johnson, because she uh, does a lot of neurologic uh, stuff with the horse, um, she said she wasn't available, but that we should contact you, Dr. Colmer. So you, that's a big recommendation um, coming from Dr. Johnson. I appreciate that. Thank <laughs> um, you. So before we dive into our questions, I want to remind everyone about our Ask the Horse Live format. We're starting with the questions that everyone submitted during registration. If you're listening live and would like to submit a question, uh, please do so via the app. Uh, we're also going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible. And if you're listening to the podcast recording of this event and you'd like to join us live in the future, please visit thehorse.com slash askthehorselive to register for notifications. And with that, Dr. Colmer, we're going to jump into our questions about EPM. So to start us off, can you explain to everyone what this disease is and how horses get it? Absolutely. Uh, EPM is a really fascinating disease. And at the risk of being long-winded, I'm going to try to kind of break it down. We'll start with just what EPM stands for. And so the E is for equine. So this is the disease of horses, of course, which is why we're all here talking about it. And the P stands for protozoa. And that's the kind of organism that's involved. It's a single-celled organism. There are a couple different types that cause the disease. And then myeloencephalitis is a, a pretty million-dollar word. And to break that down, myelo refers to the spinal cord. Encephalo refers to the brain. And itis is inflammation. So taken together, that is inflammation of the brain and or spinal cord that's caused by a protozoal organism in horses. 
And as far as horses get it, um, I'll try again to kind of keep this as brief as I can while hitting the kind of key points of it. It's actually a really interesting life cycle and everyone immediately thinks of the opossum and that is definitely the biggest player here. And the opossum is the animal that will spread the organism that's infectious to horses and the horses will get the disease by eating the hay or drinking water that's contaminated with these little um, organisms that are spread by the opossum. But there are other animals that are involved in the life cycle, at least partially, and those can include things like skunks or raccoons or actually even armadillos in some parts of the country. Um, so they, they play a role as well, but the opossum is definitely the biggest player. Um, and the kind of most important thing I want to drive home about when horses get the disease is that many, many, many horses will see the organism, they will consume the organism, and their body might make some antibodies against the organism, but only a very few of those horses that see the organism and come into contact with it will actually get the disease that we know as EPN. So do we have an idea of what percentage of horses actually have been exposed to the organism? Actually, we we do. Um, there have been a couple reports. There haven't been a ton, but there have been a few reports about kind of rough percentages of horses that have specifically been exposed to the organism. And there are so, so many, and it kind of varies by what part of the country you're in. But in the Northeast, like especially where I am over in Pennsylvania here, uh, we have a huge number of horses that will come up positive on their blood test. And I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, diagnostics and stuff um, as questions come in. But horses will come up positive on the blood test for having seen this organism up to 80% or so in the Northeast region. And then uh, it's kind of similar in the Midwest. And on the Western side of the country, it's a little bit less common. It's kind of in the 60% or so number of horses. And then in the South, it's still kind of in the 80s. So a lot of horses in this country have been exposed to the organism. But like I mentioned, that doesn't mean they all have the disease. And so there's several neurologic conditions that horses can experience or diseases that they, they can catch. Um, are there diseases that EPM can get confused with or that we're not sure, like, oh, it looks like it looks like it could be EPM, but it could be something else, um, and, and we're yeah. not quite sure until until we diagnose. Yeah, definitely. Um, neurologic disease is, is notoriously difficult in terms of, you know, coming up with diagnoses, especially EPM. And we always joke, I guess, at, at, um, at the hospital where I work that EPM can do whatever it wants. That's kind of its tagline. We always say that because it's true. And EPM, as I mentioned, it can affect the brain or it can affect the spinal cord. And so there are a number of diseases that can do just that. And so it's really important when we're working on coming up with a diagnosis to look at the whole picture. But EPM can certainly get confused with the other conditions, like, for example, wobbler's disease or CVSM. Um, and wobbler's, um, just briefly, is a disease in which the, um, the spinal cord in the neck is affected by the bones or the soft tissues around it that cause compression. And horses with wobblers might trip or stumble or have issues with the way that they are moving. And that can certainly look like EPM. So, you know, we do our best to rule that out with x-rays, for example. 
PPM can look like Lyme disease, and Lyme disease is another one that um, a lot of horses might get exposed to but don't necessarily get the disease. But when they do, we do things like spinal taps to help distinguish EPM from Lyme, but they can look very similar. And another disease that's in the news a lot lately, I think on a lot of people's minds, is equine herpes virus or equine herpes myeloencephalopathy. And that can certainly look a lot like EPM too, but uh, herpes tends to have a really, really rapid course of development and demise, unfortunately, and we diagnose that in a different way, which involves a blood test and a nasal swab. So although EPM is almost a master of disguise, sometimes it can look like a lot of other things, we rely on our diagnostics and looking at the whole picture, so to speak, to kind of come up with that final diagnosis. Um. We have a question from Michelle in Texas, and she wants to know what she can do to protect her horse from EPM. And it makes me very scared for all the opossums. <laughs> so, I know. So, so how can we protect our horses um, from this disease? That is a great question, Michelle. And I'll start with a really quick anecdote. I actually did a talk on EPM at a nearby like riding and driving club a couple years ago, and I had a audience member come up to me afterwards and told me that she was doing a pre-purchase on this horse, but she showed me a picture of the horse and in the background of the photo was an opossum, like in the paddock. And she said, should I, should I not buy this horse? And, you know, I, I laughed and I'm laughing now, but it is a good question. Um, and that kind of brings me to my answer, which is that protection from EPM um, is, is very much sort of a management situation. And so we talked a little bit about how opossums are implicated in the spread of the organism. And so as far as preventative measures go, you really want to make sure that you keep your feed room doors closed and keep your feed in very airtight containers. You know, people, some people will use um, different like trash cans and things like that. So make sure that if you are doing that, that they really are, are sealed well. Um, and also feeding off the ground can help and kind of minimize the amount of drops Brain. So just kind of decreasing the amount of feedstuffs that's available to wildlife and minimizing wildlife access as much as you can. And obviously horses, especially happy horses, live outside a lot and there's only so much you can do, but implementing appropriate like rodent control protocols, you know, as safely as you can within reason um, is also another way. And then uh, this is kind of like a vague thing, I guess, to say, but just ensuring proper health and fitness of your horses, because there are some pieces of literature that suggest that, um, you know, horses with really good functional immune systems might have an edge over those that have suppressed immune systems or aren't very healthy and just generally, you know, are not very robust. So just kind of keeping your equine partner in their top health and fitness as best you can. Um, and I guess the kind of last thing to mention in addition to management and just overall health and fitness would be there are some uh, prevention programs that involve giving the medications that we use to treat the disease in a preventative way. So you can give um, specifically panazaril or Marquis um, and also Diclazaril or protozil, these are medications that we use to treat the disease, but on some farms in particular, if there are a lot of cases that historically happen in certain areas or certain farms, 
some people have implemented um, giving lower doses of these medications as a preventative measure, but they can certainly get pricey. And, and I definitely recommend, you know, working with a veterinarian if that's something that you're interested in pursuing for your farm or for your animal. We have a question from Deborah in Indiana, and she says, if most horses have a positive EPM titer, which is something that you've already mentioned, how does the vet use blood work to determine an active case of EPM? That is such a good and honestly a really important question. So uh, when we're diagnosing a horse with EPM or we're investigating a horse for EPM, I should say, we have kind of a, a cookbook almost approach to how we go about arriving at that final diagnosis. And the first thing that comes to my mind is that you need to have a reason to be investigating this. So doing a blood test on a horse as part of a pre-purchase exam or something like that is really not recommended because a lot of horses are going to come up positive, right? And so we want to be looking at horses that specifically have neurologic issues. So if your horse is acting abnormally or tripping or doing funny things with their face or just anything that concerns you, the first thing to do is to consult with a veterinarian and that veterinarian will then perform a neurologic evaluation. So step one is identifying that the horse actually has neurologic issues. And then the second step is that, uh, as we mentioned, EPM is hard to diagnose and we really like to rule out other common conditions. So things like wobblers, for example, like I mentioned earlier. So we typically, if we do have a horse, we've evaluated it, it has neurologic deficits, our next move will often be to take x-rays of the neck to look for wobbler's disease. And then if we don't find that, often our next step is now we want to try to prove as best we can that the horse has EPM. And to do that, we not only need blood, but ideally we need cerebrospinal fluid or CSF. And that's that fluid that bathes the brain and the spinal cord. It's very important fluid. And for us to get that, we do have to do a spinal tap. But the best diagnostic that we have for horses for EPM is comparing the titers or the antibody number to the protozoa in CSF or cerebrospinal fluid and compare that to the blood. So blood alone will only tell us that the horse has seen the pathogen, whereas getting blood and comparing it to cerebrospinal fluid is our best way to identify if the horse truly has neurologic disease associated with EPM. So blood work alone is really hard to hang your hat on, but I will say two quick things on that. I could go on forever, but I'm going to say two quick things. One is that if the blood test is negative, especially in an area where I live, where so many horses are going to be positive, we actually tend to trust that negative result. And so if you have a negative blood test, we tend to be like, you know what, it's really unlikely that EPM is the, the culprit here. But if it's positive, then we really want to investigate that further with spinal fluid. And the last thing I'll say about um, the diagnostics regarding the blood work is that there are some really early cases of EPM, you know, some really astute owners out there, and they might identify the problem very early in the course of disease. And the literature does suggest and experience suggests that in some cases, it might take 10 or 14 days for those antibodies to show up. And so if you do have a horse that you are really, or the veterinarian is very suspicious of EPM, but it comes back negative, we can sometimes repeat the blood and the CSF testing in a couple weeks, and that might give us our answer. Hopefully, 
hopefully that makes sense and um, and hopefully that kind of answers Deborah's question. Yeah. So we have a follow-up question to that, and that's from Lene in Florida, and she wants to know if there's a cost-effective way to get a definitive diagnosis because it does you start doing blood and you're doing all you know all the testing Absolutely. It, it can start to add up, up for horse owners is is there a less expensive way to do it or is this just what needs oh, to be done? I wish there was I really wish there was and I think that's why blood is a really popular thing to start with but I guess the thing to consider is that if it's not EPM and you decide to treat based on blood when you don't necessarily have all the pieces together you know, you might end up spending all that money on the treatment, which is not cheap either, unfortunately, um, and then still not have any improvement and not be treating the actual problem. So although I know it can definitely be financially intimidating to be paying for things like a spinal tap, it is unfortunately our, our kind of best diagnostic out there. And so um, I think that's part of why there has been some investigation into alternative means. Um, for example, there have been some researchers that have looked at things like uh, a PCR test. So now I feel like the, the public is so much more familiar with PCR tests after COVID, yeah. right? Yeah, and for so sure. there are, you know, people investigating those means that might be cheaper. But uh, right now, that's kind of still in an investigative phase. But I do think that, you know, research is still ongoing to try to find more cost effective, less invasive just logistically easier ways of diagnosing this disease. But unfortunately, right now, we really hang our hats on that combination of blood and cerebrospinal fluid. We have a question from Christine in Florida, and she wants to know, what are you looking for in a tail pull test? And first, if you could maybe explain to those who don't know what the tail pull test is, and then, uh, then let them know what you're looking for when you're doing that. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a good question. And um, and honestly, it's, it's probably not one that I think about explaining often. So I'm really glad that um, that person asked about it. Um, and if you're on the webinar, I know on my screen, I can see actually the photo that was used for um, the advertisements for the webinar actually exhibits a tail pull conveniently. Um, so if anyone's wondering what that actually looks like, but basically as part of our neurologic evaluation, which involves a lot of really specific tests, of the horse's ability to kind of know where their feet are and exhibit normal function of their brain and their spinal cord. One of the things we do is a tail pull, and it is exactly as it sounds, which is where someone is walking the horse away and someone is doing the pull, which basically means that they are grabbing the tail, of course, carefully, and applying gentle but consistent pressure and trying to pull the horse over almost. And we will do that in both directions. And the reason that we do that test is um, it's kind of twofold. One is overall the basics of it are such that we are looking for weakness in the hind end of the horse. And so a horse that has an appropriate strength and appropriate awareness of its feet in space in response to the tail pull, the first time we pull the tail, we might catch them off guard and they'll kind of come off of their, their track a little bit. But a normal horse after that first time, we'll kind of know what we're doing and they will do the appropriate countermeasures and counterbalance and not let us pull them over. Whereas horses that have neurologic disease for reasons that involve EPM or other conditions, um, they might be much more um, lax and just easy to pull. And so some of these horses, and I don't know if any of the, the people listening to this have had horses 
where they've witnessed us do a neurologic evaluation or witnessed their vet do a neurologic evaluation and pull that tail, some horses will just come right off the track, they'll almost fall down. And those horses we describe as having um, a significant uh, weakness in their hind end. And so we're looking for weakness by pulling the tail. And the other thing we look for is we do it in both directions. So we'll do it to the right and then we'll do it to the left. And so we also wanna see symmetry because some horses will be asymmetrically weak and that might uh, kind of put the whole piece together for us when we're looking for different diagnoses because EPM in many cases, although not all, will present with asymmetric deficits, meaning that the horse's mistakes or the horse's lack of awareness of their limbs and space might only be on one side of their body, whereas other conditions like wobblers or EDM tend to be more symmetric. And so that can kind of give us a little piece of information as well. We have a question from Joanne in our live audience. She's going back to how horses get exposed to it. She wants to know uh -huh. if, if a horse could pick it up grazing. Yep, so they certainly can pick it up grazing, and that is because possums, as they're running around out there wreaking havoc, um, will defecate onto grass surfaces, they'll defecate into water sources as well. And so yes, horses definitely can pick it up from grazing. But that said, it typically isn't like a one paddock issue, right? It's not like, oh yeah, like this is the paddock where all the horses get EPM. And EPM tends to be what we call a sporadic disease in general, meaning that only like one horse on a farm in most cases will get the disease. And so it makes the management difficult, right? Because, you know, what are you going to do? Set up electric fences around your paddocks. But unfortunately, yes, horses can pick it up grazing or drinking water that's contaminated. We have a question from Sarah in Illinois. And, and we touched on the preventative treatments, but she wants to know mm -hmm. what the benefit to doing that versus the downsides could be of a preventative treatment program. Okay, yeah, that, that is a good question. I kind of mentioned the, that we can do some preventative programs with the medications. Um, the biggest downside, I would say, is financial, right? Because as I mentioned, the medications, unfortunately, um, you know, are not, uh, they're not cheap, right? That's just the reality of it. Um, and so the biggest downside would be just your pocketbook, I would say, in terms of doing the preventative treatment. Um, one of the other downsides, I guess, would be that some horses might not necessarily um, take to the products easily, like they might not like the taste of it. And so, for example, diclazaril can be used as a top dress and some horses might eat it very readily, whereas other horses might not necessarily find it as palatable. So I think um, keeping that in mind when you're considering doing a preventative protocol would be useful. And then something that's more, I guess, theoretical than anything else is you know, we don't necessarily know if resistance is something that um, that would impact EPM. You know, when you think about the widespread use of antibiotics, right, and that there are all these concerns for resistant organisms when you're using a lot, and we don't know if that would be something to worry about when you're just kind of giving these drugs to all your horses at your barn, for example. So that would be kind of a long-term potential consequence, but there are no studies investigating that. That's kind of just a, a theoretical concern. So overall, I would say the, the main downside truly is, is the financial aspect. Um, there are some, I will say there are some uh, occasional side effects associated with these medications. So, you know, they're not completely benign, right? No, no medication is 
absolutely without any potential side effects, or at least most aren't. So um, there are some reports of mild anemias associated with the medications, um, which are usually self-limiting, meaning that they don't need any sort of uh, therapeutic care. But that's just something to consider, you know, anytime you're giving a medication. Um, and diarrhea, I believe, in, in some rare instances has also been reported and some horses might go off their feed. So there's always, you know, a couple little uh, side effect concerns to worry about. But in general, I think the main downside is financial. Uh, we have a question from Samantha in Kentucky. She says she's treating a horse with EPM currently um, and has been doing so for about six months. Is a full recovery possible? That is a tricky one for sure. Um, and I'll, I guess I'll preface my answer by saying that neurologic disease is notoriously difficult because um, every horse, every person, every dog, every individual will respond to even the same disease very differently. And so without a crystal ball, unfortunately, um, it's really hard to say, you know, which horse is going to make a full recovery. But I guess the short answer is that full recovery is possible. And the literature and experience support that if a horse is very, very severely affected, they may be less likely to make that full recovery. And so um, I believe the numbers for horses that are severely affected tend to be around like 10 to 20 percent will make an absolutely full recovery, you know, back to their 100% previous, you know, condition and abilities. Um, but uh, we do find that most horses, more than half of them, will improve um, at least what we call one grade. And a grade, I won't get into it super detailed, but when we're giving horses evaluations and they have issues in the way that they ambulate or the way that they move, we grade them on a scale, usually from zero to five, where five is the most affected. And so when we are grading these horses, when we treat them for EPM, we usually will see at least one grade of improvement. And that can mean the difference between a horse that's safe to ride or not safe to ride. So, you know, in terms of recovery, it's very variable, but most horses will improve with treatment. And then animals that are m more mildly affected tend to have a much better rate of full improvement. The, the literature is unfortunately not um, super bountiful, but in general, most will improve significantly and they have a lower rate of recurrence as well when they're not as severely affected. We have a question from our live audience. Paula has been giving her horse vitamin E um, her horse that has EPM. She wants mm -hmm. to know uh, how long an EPM horse should be given a high-dose vitamin E supplement to help repair nerve damage. Her horse has been on it for almost two years, and she says her horse has improved greatly. Is that something that she needs to continue doing? That's a fantastic question, and I'm really glad to hear that her horse has improved so much. Um, and uh, bringing up vitamin E, uh, it is definitely something that we often recommend as sort of a supportive supplement when we're dealing with animals with, uh, with horses with any neurologic condition, honestly, uh, but certainly EPM as well. And um, in terms of how long to treat for, the good news is that vitamin E um, tends to be very minimal in terms of potential side effects. So it's it's kind of difficult to overdo it, but my best recommendation, and of course, speaking with your veterinarian might help elucidate this as well, but in general, we do recommend checking their levels of vitamin E before making changes in their supplementation. And so your veterinarian can draw blood 
um, and submit that to evaluate the levels of vitamin E in your horse and kind of use that to make a appropriate treatment plan and an appropriate dosing plan. But uh, vitamin E is definitely something that can be helpful in the immediate phase and also longer term. But checking those levels, I think, will be helpful in determining whether you can kind of cut back or if you need to increase or if you can stop completely. We have a question from Chelsea in California, and this is going back to clinical signs of the disease. She wants to know if there are any less common symptoms of EPM, things that maybe people uh, don't know about or wouldn't notice right away. Okay, that's definitely an interesting one for sure. I would say, um, I guess I'll, I'll briefly just talk about the most common symptoms and then talk about some less common ones. Uh, but the most common ones are um, involve things like an inability to eat, like an inability to swallow. So the horse might not be able to swallow water. It might come out their nose or mouth, or they might drop a lot of grain and hay and they kind of just ball it up in their mouth and then it falls out. So that's a really common one. Some horses with EPM will have head tilt. So they'll, they'll kind of just stand there, or walk around with their head tilted to one side. Um, and other common signs include things like droopy eyelids or uh, what we call muzzle deviation, which is where if you look at your horse head on from the front, if you look kind of subtly, you'll see their muzzle might be turned to one side or another. Um, and then, you know, the other common thing is what we call ataxia, which is just a fancy word for kind of incoordination in the way that the horse is moving. They might trip or fall or they might just kind of drag a toe every now and then. But I think less common um, signs that we, we still see, especially me working at a hospital, right, I definitely see um, kind of the worst ones, but they can have seizures associated with EPM. You know, like I said earlier, it can do whatever it wants, right? And so we can see seizures, we can see um, horses lose sensation in parts of their body. We have seen blindness before, that's a rare one. Um, and also, they can just be completely unable to stand. Like we at the hospital in particular, you know, we see a particular population that, that may not have responded to treatment in the field, right? And that requires severe or intensive care and management. So we'll see horses that just cannot stand at all. Um, so those are kind of the less common, I guess, signs associated with EPM. We have a question from Katie in Maine, and she's asking about the long-term damage that horses can have, uh, the long-term neurologic damage. Can that be identified and measured? And I think the um, interesting part of that is if you're doing a pre-purchase uh, exam on a horse, is there a way to tell that the horse has had an active case in the past? Well, that is an interesting question. Um, I guess I'll start with the the long-term damage part. Um, so EPM definitely can cause long-term damage. Like I kind of mentioned about how not every horse is going to make a full recovery, and that will look different for each horse as an individual. And for some horses, that might mean that they just have a little bit of incoordination, or maybe they have an eyelid droop that never went away, whereas for other horses, they may not be able to even be safely ridden or safely turned out. Um, and so long-term damage definitely can happen. And the interesting thing, I think, is that that damage can be caused by the protozoa, the organism kind of moving around throughout the central nervous system, but also the inflammation of the body just kind of attacking that organism. The body is is identifying it as a foreign invader. And unfortunately, even though the body is trying to do its best, 
sometimes that uh, excited system, that inflammatory system that's trying to get rid of the invader can actually cause even more damage. And so you definitely can have long-term issues associated with this disease, but it would be, I would think, very difficult to be able to identify on like a pre-purchase, for example, that a horse had an infection, right? Because they're they're just going to end up with that positive blood test, just like the next hundred horses that walk into your life that have just seen the organism and not necessarily have the disease. And so if you do have um, concerns that your horse has long-term issues, our best way of assessing that is by doing repeat neurologic evaluation. So having your veterinarian out, you know, every month or so while you're watching them improve or hopefully improve, some horses will just kind of plateau at a certain point, but having your veterinarian out and doing those repeat assessments and comparing them to the previous assessments to identify kind of where you are in your improvement. But unfortunately, it would be very difficult to identify a horse that had a previous episode and say that with absolute certainty if you didn't experience that, um, you know, yourself as your own horse and knowing that as the owner. It would be really hard to detect that. But that's a, a really interesting question. Lisa in California wants to know if there is a good post-EPM rehab protocol to help with some of these neurologic problems that the horses might have. That is also an interesting question, um, and I, I guess my best answer would go back to that idea that every horse is different and every horse is going to have uh, specific issues and specific deficits. I don't think I've ever seen two cases of EPM that were exactly the same, and so with that, coming up with a rehabilitation protocol is going to be very specific, and so I probably sound like a broken record, but going back to your veterinarian uh, that knows your horse best and has seen their progress or lack of progress moving forward with the disease after a diagnosis is going to be your best source for specific rehabilitation. But I will say in general, with horses that have EPM or any neurologic condition that we're dealing with, we definitely want to shy away from any what we call forced exercise. So that's, you know, riding, driving, lunging, what have you. Um, until they have reached a, a safe plane of being able to walk or trot or canter, whatever it is, without the risk of falling down or tripping or stumbling or, or causing issues to themselves, their handlers, or those around them. Um, and the other thing is, you know, some horses might need stall rest for a really long time, which can be difficult as well. But in short, I would say, you know, rehabilitation protocols are going to be very specific and very tailor tailored to your horse's needs based on what their specific issues are with this disease. Hopefully that kind of makes sense. We've had several questions from our live audience that have to do with preventing relapse. Um, how do you prevent it and what's your recommended course of action if a horse does relapse? Oh, relapsing is devastating for sure. Um, thankfully, it's not terribly, terribly common. But the issue, I would say, I guess, with relapse is we, we don't really understand if relapse is something that is truly a horse um, kind of losing their immune system's ability to stop the pathogen. And is that pathogen just kind of reactivating and causing an issue again? Or is this a horse that just for whatever reason is more susceptible and has the disease again. And so because we don't necessarily understand what causes these relapses or what we think are relapses, it's really hard to prevent them. 
But in general, I would say that the preventative measures that I described at the um, beginning of this discussion for that question about, you know, how do we prevent it in general, I would just kind of go back to those measures. And there's nothing really specific, unfortunately, to prevent relapse in the same horse. Unfortunately, some horses are, are more susceptible for reasons that we don't understand. But if you do identify an increase in the severity of your horse's neurologic signs at some point in their progression, then I would definitely recommend having your veterinarian back out and doing another neurologic evaluation to kind of better assess where you are in terms of improvement or worsening. Jan from our live audience would like to know how effective the uh, current EPM treatments are. That's a good question. And so um, in terms of how effective they are, we know that with treatment, um, kind of going back to that idea of uh, severely affected animals, only about 10 to 20% will completely recover. Um, but most of them, so somewhere around 60%, will improve up to one grade, like I mentioned, and that's with treatment. And then in the mildly affected horses, 80% generally will improve with treatment, whereas 50% uh, or so roughly of those will completely recover. And those numbers are from a couple years ago. You know, unfortunately, we don't have updated research specifically. But in general, treatment uh, absolutely increases your odds of recovery from EPM. So we definitely recommend those treatments. Um, and there are a couple, there are about three of them that are FDA approved on the market today. Um, and in general, we kind of consider them fairly equivalent in terms of their abilities to fight this disease. Uh, Mary is in our live audience and she wants to know if EPM can uh, cause horses to be excitable or or can cause other behavioral changes in your animal? That's a great question. Um, so to, to start with that one, um, I would have to say, again, EPM can do whatever it wants, as we always say. And so it's absolutely possible that EPM could lend itself to behavior changes, excitability, etc. However, there are other neurologic conditions that perhaps more commonly would lend themselves to such specific changes, meaning behavior. Um, one of the more common ones that we're seeing the last couple of years is something called equine degenerative myeloencephalopathy, which is also known as EDM, so different than EPM. It's all just an alphabet soup. Mm -hmm. But essentially, EDM is a disease in which there is degeneration, as the name suggests, of the brain and or the spinal cord. And that one is perhaps our most common diagnosis for horses that are presenting with neurologic issues and specifically behavioral changes. Um, and the specific parts of the brain that control behavior and decision making, unfortunately, are common areas that are affected by that condition. And so, um, you know, EPM is, is one of the things that can come to mind. But, you know, when you have your veterinarian out and they're evaluating the horse, they're also going to consider other conditions like EDM, um, among others. And so, um, in short, yes, EPM can cause behavioral changes, but there are other conditions to consider as well. Uh, Kara in Wisconsin wants to know if you have a broodmare who has had EPM, has been treated, has recovered. Can you breed that mare again? And could there be any risks to breeding her? 
That is definitely a good question, especially for this time of year. Um, there's just babies everywhere and lots of breeding going on. And uh, it's definitely really good that Kara is thinking about this. It's important to consider these things when you're making these breeding decisions. And as far as uh, what the effect could be on the mare herself, I guess we can kind of start there. We do know that in literature and experience, it seems like situations of stress, or immunocompromisation can lend themselves to increased risk of developing EPM. And what I mean by that is that horses that are in stressful situations, either physiologically or recreationally, like racehorses or horses that are transported a lot or pregnant horses, might have a, an increased risk. And I don't have hard numbers for you on that. I don't think they exist. But in theory, yes, you know, horses that are pregnant um, might be at an increased risk of perhaps recurrence or the initial development of EPM. So that is possible, but we don't have hard numbers on that. You know, would I let that be enough to stop me from breeding a horse I really wanted to breed? I don't know. But there are no obvious um, concerns in breeding a mare that has previously had EPM. She just may have a slightly increased risk of recurrence. And so just kind of more careful monitoring perhaps than the next brood mare. Uh, and then in terms of the foal, there are some interesting reports, just a couple out there, of the identification of those antibodies or titers, as we call them, in young foals. And so, you know, there there's always some questions about, you know, can the foals get it from the mare if the mare has EPM while she's pregnant? And at this time, it does not seem like transmission via the placenta while the foal is in utero is a route of infection. So to answer that part of the question, I would say it is very unlikely um, that a foal would get EPM from the dam. But in general, I would say the mare has a slight increased risk of uh, recrudescence of her disease, but in general, there are no obvious issues there. And I guess the last thing I'll say about that is, of course, if you have a mare that's really wobbly and has issues with balance, adding a baby to the mix um, in utero and thereafter might be a little bit more risky, right? And so you kind of have to consider the individual and the severity of her clinical side. We have a related question from Phyllis in Oregon, and she wants to know if it's okay to breed a stallion who's been diagnosed with EPM. Oh, also a good question. Um, so at this time, and to my knowledge, at least, I do not know that there are any reports necessarily that semen would be a route of transmission of EPM. So I don't think that if, you know, you're dealing with a stallion that's had EPM that you need to worry about that being transmitted that way. But um, I guess it does make you wonder, you know, you do want to know that if he has neurologic disease that it is EPM and not something like wobblers or EDM or something else that might have a genetic predisposition, right? And so it's important to just do your due diligence if you are breeding to um, a stallion that has neurologic issues. And the other thing, we don't have any proof of this, but maybe there is some inherit uh, heritable trait or heritable traits that might predispose certain horses to EPM. We don't know. And so it would be impossible to say that, you know, maybe this stallion that got EPM has some sort of physical or physiologic parameters that make him more likely to get EPM and maybe he'll give that to his foals. Um, so it's impossible to say. So those would just be things to keep in mind. But in general, breeding, you know, with 
semen from a stallion that's had EPM should not lend itself to transmission via that route. We have a question from Gina in Ohio, and she wants to know if you foresee a vaccine in the future for EPM. That is a, a great thought and actually has been investigated, interestingly. Uh, there was a vaccine that was uh, created and investigated a couple years ago, like maybe five or five or six years ago or so, um, that was trying to stimulate the horse's immune system to fight the pathogen, just like any vaccine, just like the COVID vaccine. But unfortunately, in trials, it did not seem to be protective. And so that vaccine, I don't know if they have continued to investigate it. I was not part of that research team or anything like that, but um, I did see that manuscript come through. I saw that publication and it seemed like they were encountering issues at trial where it just didn't seem protective. And we don't necessarily know why that is. Maybe there are different strains Maybe, you know, the horse's immune system, for whatever reason, just does not respond in the way that it does to other vaccines. But unfortunately, right now, we don't have one. But, you know, it, it may be in development. And it was in development. It just kind of stopped short, unfortunately, before it hit market because it wasn't necessarily doing what we wanted it to do. We have a question from Lucy in Phoenix. Uh, and she wants to know how important is diet? with these horses that have been diagnosed with EPM? And is there a specific diet that is recommended? There is not a specific dietary recommendation for horses with EPM or um, neurologic disease in general. But I would say, depending on how they're affected, you know, we kind of talked about how some horses will have issues where they can't swallow, for example, right? So that's going to be a really important dietary issue. So when it comes down to their ability to get calories, that's where you're going to want to really work with your veterinarian to make sure that they're getting the nutrition they need. So if an animal cannot swallow or can only chew and swallow a small amount or a small particle, that might lend itself to horses that can only have mashes or gruel or in some cases, they might require having your veterinarian come out and having them tube, so placing a tube through their nostrils into their stomach and giving them nutrition that way, or even require them to be hospitalized and receive their nutrition intravenously. So the, the main issue with diet would really just be in getting calories into them. But in general, there are not any specific dietary recommendations. I kind of mentioned vitamin E as a, a supplement that can help. And so that can be added to their feed as a top dress and things like that. But in general, no, there aren't any really specific dietary um, recommendations. Susan in our live audience wonders if a horse can be exposed to the protozoa earlier in life and then develop uh, clinical signs later in life of a EPM. That is a really, really interesting question, I have to say. Um, I don't know that I can answer that, unfortunately. I don't think that we know necessarily if that is a course that the disease takes. Um, it certainly can take, you know, weeks or months, theoretically, for it to develop. And it kind of depends on maybe how many organisms or um the specific type of organism or where the organism meets the central nervous system. So it could take time, but I don't know necessarily 
that we anticipate that there could be a situation where horses are exposed years and years earlier, for example. But it's, it's possible, but unfortunately, I don't have a good answer for that. That's a really interesting question. There are some diseases, like the degenerative condition that I mentioned, that might be associated with certain issues earlier in life, and then you don't see the changes until way, way later. But EPM doesn't tend to be one that we consider in that sort of category. We have a question from Amanda in New York who wants to know about uh, behavior. She said, since being diagnosed with EPM, my horse that I've owned for 10 years is suddenly very and dangerously anxious in large groups of horses. Could this be related to the EPM and is it re reversible? Well, that is a very frustrating thing to be dealing with for sure. And we definitely see horses uh, for similar issues. And I would say kind of similar to the question a little while ago about behavioral concern, it certainly can be associated with EPM. Um, and like I also mentioned, it could also be a different condition, right? But EPM could be associated with that behavioral issue. And unfortunately, we don't necessarily have a way of predicting what issues and the severity of those issues, how that's going to be affected by treatment. And so it's hard to say if it's going to be reversible or not. Unfortunately, it comes down to that individual animal's response. Um, so I do hope and certainly cross my fingers for her that um, that that is an issue that will ultimately subside. But unfortunately, it's impossible to predict. But that's definitely a, a tricky situation. Alicia from our live audience wonders if she should consider the vitamin E already in a horse's diet before adding a supplement like Elevate. I'm sorry, do you mind repeating that question? So should she consider how much vitamin E is in the horse's diet already through oh, its ration that's a good before question. adding a supplement? That's a good question. So um, that actually raises a really important point, which is that the main source of vitamin E in a horse's diet is actually going to come from fresh forage or essentially grass. So grass is the, the best source of natural vitamin E for horses. But unfortunately for a lot of horses, in different parts of the country or at different farms, they may not necessarily have access to grass just via the management and the land and, and where they are geographically. And so that's where supplementation comes in. But in general, the horses, um, you know, dried grass, also known as hay, and their grain is not necessarily going to be a great source of vitamin E. So in terms of deciding whether or not to supplement, I probably wouldn't look at your feed labels, but I would rather um, you know, contact your veterinarian. We do have that test I mentioned. It's just an easy blood test for vitamin E levels. And so if you have concerns about vitamin E in your horse's diet and you want to know if they're getting enough, that's kind of your best way to check. So doing that blood test, see where you are in terms of your levels, and then use that to make a decision about whether or not you want to supplement. But in short, the horse's main diet of um, of grains and hay is not necessarily going to do what you want in terms of supplementing or providing vitamin E. It's really going to be access to nice green grass. But like I said, not all horses have that ability, right? So, you know, we do what we can and supplement where we can. Tina in our live audience wants to know if a horse that has Cushing's or PPID it would be more likely to get EPM, and if they did get it, would they deteriorate more quickly than a healthy horse? 
that is very thoughtful. Um, so definitely, as I, I kind of alluded to earlier, the literature and experience would suggest that horses that have um, suppressed immune system function might lend themselves to higher incidence of EPM. So yes, overall animals that have PPID, just because the nature of that disease uh, tends to leave horses with a higher susceptibility of infection, certainly may end up being at a higher risk for the development of EPM and may end up at a higher risk for rapid deterioration. So yes, that certainly is possible. It doesn't mean that all horses with PPID are going to end up getting it, but certainly based on what we know, we would imagine that these horses do have an increased risk. And Tony and our live audience wants to know if there are other autoimmune type diseases that might put a horse more at risk. Autoimmune diseases, that is that is an interesting one as well. Um, so autoimmune disease is not terribly common in the horse. So that's good news, I suppose. Uh, but if we were dealing with any sort of autoimmune disease, in theory, it would lend itself to a higher propensity for the development of EPM. But luckily, we don't deal with a lot of autoimmune disease in our equine population. And we have a question from Mary Lou in our live audience who wonders if a horse with EPM could become narcoleptic. Oh, okay. I think you said so, anything can happen. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, anything. It can do whatever it wants, right? Yeah. But um, narcolepsy is a really interesting condition in the horse. I will say um, it often may be um, overdiagnosed, perhaps, because horses will prevent or rather present with a condition that we more commonly cause call sleep deprivation. So these are horses that have musculoskeletal disease, neurologic disease, whatever it is, but they might not necessarily sleep as much as they should. And then they look narcoleptic. They're these horses that, you know, if you have video cameras in your barn, for example, you might see these horses fall down in the middle of the night um, and worry, or even in the middle of the day and worry that your horse is narcoleptic, but they often are what we call sleep deprived. And so those animals can happen, or that disease and that process can happen as a result of neurologic disease. So horses with EPM can end up sleep deprived in situations, especially where some horses are really smart and they know that they have these neurologic issues and that they might not be able to stand up once they go down without assistance. And those horses might not lay down and they might not get the rest that they need and they're just standing for days and days and days. And so those horses in theory would potentially end up looking like narcoleptic horses where they end up sleep deprived and falling down and things like that. So yes, you definitely can see those sort of quote narcoleptic and quote signs with EPM horses, but it also can be caused by so many other things. So again, I know I sound like a broken record, but if you have those concerns, having your veterinarian out to investigate for lameness, neurologic disease, et cetera, is going to be your best bet at kind of solving that issue. Um, you've mentioned that EPM can uh, affect a horse's vision. We had a question from Thomas in Ohio, and he wants to know if it can make a horse go blind. Yes, it can. And that is one of those rare uh, clinical signs associated with EPM. It's definitely not super common, but yes, EPM classic can do what it wants, but it certainly can cause blindness. It can cause seizures um, because it can affect all different parts of the brain. And so for that reason, yes, we can certainly see horses go blind from this disease. 
Uh, Deborah in our live audience wants to know if a horse that's had EPM that's been treated and seems to have recovered, if that horse can safely be ridden and competed on the show circuit. Great question. There are definitely horses out there competing successfully that have had EPM for sure. And that doesn't mean that every horse that has it is going to be able to resume, you know, their level of activity that they were at before the disease. But yes, horses that have had uh, EPM can go on to be ridden safely and have successful athletic careers, absolutely. And in terms of identifying that risk, that's where that neurologic evaluation is going to be very, very important in order to determine where the horse is in their improvement and how safe they are to have a rider on their back. So in short, yes, horses can can absolutely be ridden again and enter, you know, back into their athletic careers. But that has to be done carefully, you know, with a veterinary professional, with that professional opinion um, and, you know, kind of taking it day by day, month by month and making sure that they get back to that safe place in their recovery. And if you have a horse that is an an elite athlete, um, is it likely that they can go back to that kind of work? If you have a horse that's a, a Grand Prix jumper or an FEI dressage mm-hmm. horse, do you, you can they return to that level of competition, or is it likely that yeah. they'd have to back down the levels a bit? Yeah, great question. And, you know, every horse, again, is an individual, and it's also going to depend on the severity of their disease. And so, you know, kind of like I mentioned before with prognosis is that if their disease is very, very severe, if they are those horses that can't stand up and can't swallow and take weeks and weeks and months and months, they may not necessarily make that full recovery or be able to go on and do those jobs. However, there are still other horses that do make full recoveries. And if the severity of their disease is not, you know, too terrible, then they have a higher likelihood of returning to that full athletic function. Um, We've had several questions from our live audience about whether or not you've had experience treating with a couple different options, and you're going to maybe have to help me with the pronunciation on these. (laughs) Sure. Uh, The Levaminsol? Levamisol. Levamisol. Oh, and then um, there's another one, uh, Deco. I'm not sure how to pronounce that one either. Um, D-E-C-O-Q-U-I-N-A-T-E. Does that spell something that you recognize? Um, So, yes. So I have not treated with the second medication that you mentioned. And honestly, nor have I used Levamisole. I know that there are um, some clinicians that use them and feel that they've had success with them. I just personally have not. And that doesn't mean that they're not uh, effective medications. But I will say that um, there are three FDA-approved medications for the treatment of uh, EPM in horses. And those are Panazeril, which is Marquee. And that's the one that we use most commonly. But that doesn't mean that it's the best by any means. Like I said, they kind of have uh, the three of them pretty equivalent success rates. The second one is Diclazeril, and I should say Panazeril is a paste, and so for some horses and for some people in management programs, that might be the easiest to give. And then Diclazeril is um, the pellet as a top dress, so for other situations, that might be best and easiest to give. And then um, the sulfa uh, pyrimethamine, which is rebalance, is a liquid. And so those are three different formulations, three different medications, but they are all FDA approved and have similar success rates. And so those are the medications that I am most 
familiar with and most comfortable using. Uh, but those other medications, I personally have not uh, have not used. We have a question from Deanne in Ontario, Canada, and she wants to know, aside from uh, the medications, are there any alternative or complementary therapies that you might recommend for horses with clinical signs related to EPM? Yeah, definitely. Um, in addition to the anti, we call them anti-coccidial medications. Those are the three that I just mentioned. Um, it, we do do some other supportive medical therapies. So your veterinarian might recommend uh, anti-inflammatories. So those might be butorbanamine or even steroids for the first week or so of treatment. And the reason that we do anti-inflammatories specifically in that first week is because when we kill the parasite off with those medications, it causes a lot of inflammation because again, that body is recognizing this invader and now it knows it's dead and it wants to get rid of it. And that inflammation that happens can cause a lot of damage. And so we do want to quiet down the immune system during that time. So we will use anti-inflammatories. And then I mentioned vitamin E as our supplement of choice. But as far as alternative therapies go, unfortunately, we don't have any literature to support them. You know, I can't say, you know, this percentage of horses that got, um, you know, chiropractic or acupuncture improved compared to not receiving those. We don't have that data. But that said, as long as the supportive or alternative therapies are being done in a way that is safe and, you know, discussed with your veterinary professional, then I don't think that, you know, you necessarily can knock them at all. And I know that uh, a lot of people have seen what they feel is, is dramatic improvement with things like chiropractic or acupuncture or what have you. And so, you know, I, I think as long as they're done in a safe manner and as long as your veterinarian is at least um they kind of know what you know you're dealing with and what professionals are are being involved as well. Then I think you're safe to to do those supportive therapies. It's just like people, you know, some people feel that acupuncture or uh, massage therapy, et cetera, really improves their neurologic condition. And so, you know, I don't think you can knock it till you try it. And as long as these things are done safely and under some supervision, I don't think that there's you know anything wrong with pursuing that alternative therapy. Okay. Well, with that, uh, we are out of time tonight. We've covered a lot of ground. I want to thank you, Dr. Comer, for joining us and answering all these questions. You've been a great guest. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And honestly, these questions were fantastic. So I, I really appreciated that. Yeah. And the hour goes by quickly, doesn't it? It really does. Um, I want to also thank uh, Kentucky Performance Products, the makers of Elevate, for sponsoring this event. And finally, I want to thank our audience for joining us, uh, submitting questions, and then those of us, those of you who listen to the podcast in the future. Until next time, from all of us here at the Horse, have a great night.